My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Glenn Michaelchuk. The direct violence committed and abetted by the Canadian state abroad has a horrific impact on those who bear its consequences, largely civilians, whatever the government propaganda says, and mostly non-white, but here in Canada, the amped-up Canadian complicity in war, empire, death, and destruction in the last 15 years is, tragically, more like a dull ache in the body politic, a source of nausea and a focus of dislike for the significant proportion of the population who oppose militarist adventures overseas, but largely dealt with by trying not to think about it too much. Even the Canadian participation in war and empire in the context of Afghanistan which was the longest war in Canadian history, and which a solid majority of the country opposed in its later years, generated only sporadic and fragmented active opposition. Thankfully, there are a range of ordinary people who continue to do the hard work of actively opposing war and supporting peace with justice. Not all of them self-identify as anti-war activists or peace activists, of course, but some do, including Glenn Michaelchuk. He's the chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg, a broad-based anti-war and peace organization. He speaks with me about the roots of the group, its work to slowly build routine peace and justice events into the fabric of life in the city, its responses to the not-infrequent crises that militarism brings, and some reflections on his own more than three decades of working against war. We spoke by Skype from Winnipeg. My name is Glenn Michaelchuk. I am chair of the Peace Alliance Winnipeg. And Peace Alliance Winnipeg is a broad-based anti-war and peace organization based in Winnipeg. It serves as a coordinating point for the activities of a lot of other groups and individuals who are concerned about peace, not only within Canada, but also internationally. As the Peace Alliance Winnipeg, we also touch upon uh, issues of social justice. So we're quite a broad-based organization, but I would say that in the last several years, our focus has been on the questions of peace and particularly Canadian foreign policy as it impacts Canada's role in the world. My path of being involved with Peace Alliance Winnipeg goes back to the 1980s, the early 1980s. And at that time, the anti-war movement was in particular upsurge. And the question at that time was the danger of nuclear war and the arms race between, uh, at that time, there were two superpowers in the world and two major military blocs. There was the United States with NATO and there was the Soviet Union with the Warsaw Pact. And if you or your listeners remember back, the 1980s were particularly scenes of large demonstrations against the dangers of nuclear war. Many people at that time believed it was a very imminent and real possibility. And in Winnipeg in 1980 or 81, the main anti-war peace organization was something called the Winnipeg Coordinating Committee for Disarmament. 
And in the early 1980s, it began to organize something called the Walk for Peace, which has been held every year in June since then. And the walk, the original Walk for Peace in those early years in the 1980s uh, and through much of the 1980s attracted very, very large numbers of people. The first one, I think, caught everyone by surprise. And that would be back in 1981 when almost 15,000 people demonstrated in Winnipeg. June was the time when all around the world various large anti-war actions were taking place. It was almost international day of action back then against the danger of nuclear war. One of the other big issues at that time was the testing of the cruise missile in Canada. And Canada had made itself available for the United States to test the cruise missile in the high north. So that was my first involvement and engagement with issues of peace and anti-war activities. And then it carried on through the 80s, of course, as various other issues emerged through the 1980s, the 90s, and up until the present. The Peace Alliance Winnipeg was always active throughout the whole period of the 1980s and the 90s. And it really took over much of the work after the Winnipeg Coordinating Committee for Disarmament lost some initiative and some drive after almost 10, 12 years of work. And the Peace Alliance Winnipeg in the 90s took up the work of continuing the Walk for Peace and other activities that had sort of been the benchmarks of the Winnipeg Coordinating Committee for Disarmament and its work. One of the things that we organize, aside from the Walk for Peace each year, is the lantern ceremony. And people might be familiar with that in that many cities in Canada and many cities around the world commemorate the anniversary of the dropping of atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with something called the lantern ceremony, a memorial that really originated in Hiroshima as a way of commemorating those two actions. Going back to 2003, there was, of course, the lead up to the second U.S.-Iraq war. And in 2003, a large coalition had come together in Winnipeg, as in many other cities, because there was international calls to oppose that growing danger of war. And after that war and the organizing of people against that war, we had very successful action in Winnipeg uh, on the International Day of Action in 2003. We realized that in order to carry on, the No War Coalition had to become more of a true organization. It was a coalition, so it had many different groups in it. And that can have its own problems in trying to keep momentum to that type of organization, making decisions and so on. So after several years of continuing with the No War Coalition, we decided to establish the Peace Alliance Winnipeg again out of that No War Coalition. And that's when the Peace Alliance Winnipeg in its present form came into being again. The Peace Alliance, as I said, had always been active in the No War Coalition. So essentially the individuals who were the main organizers for the Peace Alliance Winnipeg, as the No War Coalition began to lose some of its steam and its initiative because, again, the, the difficulty of keeping a coalition together, we decided, uh, there were several of us, and we decided that we would reestablish the Peace Alliance Winnipeg, but reach out and create it as a broad anti-war peace movement in the city, which would hopefully encourage other people to join with us in the work as they saw fit and as they saw necessary to do that. So we established the organization with a, an executive comprised of four people and a general membership. To be a general member required nothing more than you to pay a modest set of dues, a dollar a month. 
and you could join and become a member and be entitled to be at its meetings, um, vote on its issues, and yourself become a part of the leadership of the Peace Alliance Winnipeg, if you saw it that way. It's really a very broad coalition. I wouldn't say any one group of people is the main force for our organization. We have students, we have ordinary working people, we have teachers, we have a lot of people who come from the faith communities. Having said that, though, I should say that our membership is quite modest in size, but we find that the significant thing about the Peace Alliance is because we have an organized executive of the Peace Alliance, notwithstanding what may happen in terms of fluctuations in memberships or involvement, that we are able to quickly respond to issues and pull together the needed forces other people to carry out actions when something arises, such as the current situation with Iraq, or as often the case, we have very close alliances within the Arab and Muslim communities, the Palestinian communities. So we're also very active when these wars have broken out between Israel and Gaza. Tell me a bit more about the Walk for Peace and what that involves. Well, the Walk for Peace is one of those examples of our work to pull together the broader community. The Walk for Peace always takes place in June. So each year in the spring, we issue uh, a call out to the broad community, people we know, people we don't know, and strike a organizing committee for the Walk for Peace. And each year we tend to focus on various issues that may be emerging in the world. So, for example, at the time of Canada's participation in the bombing missions of Libya, we made that the focal point of that Walk for Peace, and we used that to discuss the question of Canada's membership in NATO. In the last couple of years, there's been an interest to broaden the walk from just being a specific demonstration which walks through the city and has a small gathering afterwards to actually creating as a second part of the Walk for Peace what we call the Peace Festival. So for the last several years now, we have had both the Walk for Peace followed by the Peace Festival, which tries to build on the links that we've established. We have entertainment. We have various groups coming there to speak. We have people with literature tables. We have those kinds of events that are more than just having the walk and the demonstration about a specific issue. Setting aside for the moment, responding to crises, which we'll talk about in a bit, tell me about some of the other kinds of activities and actions that the Alliance has engaged in over the years. One of the questions that we have recently taken up is the question of human rights. So we carry various work in an ongoing way, you know, based on our capacity at each time. For example, in September, on this question of human rights, uh, Winnipeg, of course, is the center of the Human Rights Museum in Canada. And the opening of the Human Rights Museum was in September of this year, middle of September. So for several months before that, we had thought, well, it should be significant that besides this very formal bureaucratic structure and all the attention that we be paid to it during its opening, that we have also a, another look at human rights from a less institutional and government perspective. And we came upon the idea of dealing with the issue of Omar Khadr. Just a quick interruption. 
Omar Khadr is a Canadian citizen who was living with his family in Afghanistan during the U.S. invasion of that country. He was alleged to have killed a U.S. soldier in battle, despite the fact that there's copious evidence that he didn't do it, despite the fact that he was only 15 at the time, and despite the fact that even if he did do what he was accused of, under domestic and international law, resisting an occupying army is not in fact a crime, he was nonetheless detained without any proper due process in the U.S. facility at Guantanamo Bay for over a decade. He was ultimately repatriated to Canada in 2012, but he remains the only former Guantanamo prisoner from a Western country who continues to be detained by his home country. It's a very key question to the development of human rights in Canada, and particularly the denial of human rights in Canada. And we brought in Dennis Edney, who is the lawyer acting on behalf of Omar Cotter, to give a presentation on human rights, and he did so and his perspective on the legal questions and how the government had been moving on legal issues to make questions of human rights much more problematic in Canada. And we also did it as a fundraiser because, of course, the legal defense for Omar Khadr has incurred very significant costs. So it was also a fundraiser. So question of human rights is something that we have been focusing on. The question of NATO and Canada's participation in NATO has been something that we have been focusing on. In terms of raising these questions and finding ways to broaden that discussion in the community in various ways, several years ago we held a forum on NATO, a public forum to discuss that question, and it coincided with one of the major recent anniversaries of NATO. The way the forum was set up, we set it up really as a debate between James Ferguson, who is at the University of Manitoba and is connected with defense studies and so on, so he is a proponent of NATO, and we had a well-known university professor, Henry Heller, professor of history, present why Canada's membership in NATO is a threat to Canada and really embroils Canada in various wars and the danger that it will be embroiled in wars. So it was a debate, a pro and con debate. And, of course, we've had various forums dealing with the politics of the Middle East, We've also had forums and panel discussions on the significance of the Idle No More movement. And that, of course, is more reflective of the broader social issues in Canada. Tell me a bit about the ways in which the Alliance has responded to crisis, whether that is the latest attack on Gaza or the threat of Canadian involvement in some overseas military venture? What, what kinds of things does the Alliance do when something like that is imminent? Well, often uh, the immediate response is we organize demonstrations. And I should say that the Peace Alliance Winnipeg is part of a national umbrella organization called the Canadian Peace Alliance, which unites peace organizations in various Canadian cities. And often our response as the Peace Alliance Winnipeg is based on national calls from the Canadian Peace Alliance. So, for example, on the most recent deployment of Canadian fighter planes to Iraq, in October 25th, there was a national day of action called by the Canadian Peace Alliance. And we had a demonstration here in a very large downtown community, which is very busy, has a lot of street life. And we set up on each of the four corners with placards and people to distribute leaflets. We had a small leaflet calling on Canada not to be involved in the war. Received very good response for the people. So over two hours, we had distributed 500 leaflets. So very often, the work of the Peace Alliance Winnipeg in terms of those immediate and crisis responses is to 
have immediate demonstrations and taking the message out to the public. Because really, we've learned that over the years, you can't rely on the, the mainstream media, the big media, the media that is really very closely tied with corporate interests to present a picture. So it's often necessary to get out into the streets to do that. For example, when Israel attacked the flotilla that was going to break the blockade on Gaza, we were very able to, within 24 hours, have a large demonstration just on a street corner, one of the busy street corners, so that we could distribute information to the people. So it's a way of bringing an immediate response. As these things carry on, we then try to look at developing some educational forums or other means, such as teach-ins. Teach-ins we have not used really since the time of the second Iraq war. But things like that to broaden the call, get more people involved. For example, on the question of the war in Ukraine, we recently hosted uh, Roger Annis. Listeners might be interested that Roger Annis, along with his recent work on the conflict in the Ukraine, has also been very involved in the project of bringing together anti-capitalist and green politics that goes by the name of eco-socialism. If you search rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca for bringing red and green together, you can listen to the episode of Talking Radical Radio from March of this year, in which Annis talks about his involvement in the Vancouver Eco-Socialist Group. We recently hosted uh, Roger Annis at a speaking engagement to talk about the war in eastern Ukraine, the developments there, the various forces at work. So that kind of education we find is very important. And because we have some capabilities to videotape it, we often publish them uh, on our website through a YouTube link. So that way it keeps that information out there and it develops it further. Give me a sense of the kinds of conversations that you have with ordinary non-activist folks in Winnipeg about these questions of, you know, Canadian involvement in war, Canadian militarism, that kind of thing? Well, going back to the action we just had, I was one of the people distributing the pamphlet, and I thought people were very interested. You can just tell because, you know, they'll be walking past you, and you'll say what the leaflet is about, and they'll turn around and come back and take it. And that doesn't often happen on issues, but it did on this one. And the comments were all very skeptical about Canada's role there and very skeptical that Canada had anything to do there. So I think people have begun to learn over the years. They aren't being fooled about a lot of the justifications that are being used for these adventures. On a broader scope, we had a forum on electoral democracy in Canada. One of the guest panelists at that was Elizabeth May. Again, a very interesting discussion. There was almost 300 people at that meeting to discuss the problems of Canadian democracy. From our perspective, part of the issue is the kind of democracy we have in Canada that doesn't really allow an expression from the people about what their interests are in terms of Canada's role in the world. You see that on the question of war resistors. And, uh, of course, the war resistors are those U.S. soldiers who came to Canada to avoid serving in the widely opposed invasion, occupation, and recolonization of Iraq, led by the United States in the uh, early 2000s. I mean, twice Parliament voted to allow war resistors to stay in Canada. That was during periods of minority governments. 
It was a non-binding vote, but twice Parliament did that, and yet war resistors are still being hounded out of Canada. Give me a sense, as someone who has been involved in these issues for 30-odd years, of any kind of trajectory or shift that you've noticed in the political environment for someone who is advocating an anti-war, anti-militarist position. Is it harder than it used to be? Is it easier than it used to be? How has it changed over that time? Well, I think one of the problems is that there's no one party in Canada that really addresses the problems of Canadian foreign policy in a broad sense, including, I mean, the NDP used to have on its platform uh, withdrawal from NATO. I don't believe that's there anymore. I'm not a member of the NDP, but I don't believe that's there. So I think the real problem in Canada, and it has stayed essentially the same, is there's no way in a political context because no parties are really taking this up, the question of peace and Canadian foreign policy. I think it's a real problem. It's the same problem that's really been there all these 30 years that I've noticed. Now, there are some things that happen even within the parties. For example, one member from the NDP, one member from the Liberals several years ago sponsored a resolution, a bill to create a Department of Peace. That work really hasn't gone anywhere because uh, both MPs are no longer in Parliament. But there are some of those things that happen. But it's not major. It's not consistent. So in terms of the general public involvement in it, because no parties really emphasize these questions, it's hard to bring that question forward. However, I think that people are becoming more and more aware of the falseness of many of the justifications. And I think more and more people are looking to the questions of what kind of foreign policy Canada has, what kind of role Canada has in the world. So I think that is changing. The big problem is there's no political way in terms of a political party to hope for that change really gaining a platform in Parliament at this time. One of the things that our current government has done is it's put a lot of effort into trying to push militarism, not just in a practical sense, but in a cultural sense, and to instill it in lots of little ways into the culture. Tell me about what the alliance has done over the years to respond to that attempt by the government to militarize the culture. Well, it's been one of the things we've raised around the Walk for Peace. It's been one of the things we've raised in terms of our various actions. We did bring in one of the MPs to speak on the question of the Department of Peace at the Lantern Ceremony a couple of years ago. We did also around the question of Remembrance Day, which is really bound up in recent years with the promotion of militarism. So on Remembrance Day, I did an interview on a local university radio station with actually the war resistor who lives here in Winnipeg, Joshua Key. And we talked about the role of militarism and how it's been incorporated into the issues of Remembrance Day. We work with organizations locally, such as Project Peacemakers, who have actually developed a curriculum around Remembrance Day to de-emphasize the militarism aspect that has been promoted. And we've, you know, in some small ways, tried to pick up on the White Poppy campaign locally. So it's work in progress, so to speak, but it's still many of the planks of our platform. And on the question of militarism, of course, if you know hockey, you know the Winnipeg Jets and you know their new logo, right? So the question of militarism is actually very pervasive in terms of sports. 
I mean, all the sporting events now in Canada, you cannot escape the fact that in some way the military is promoted there. And that's not to denigrate the military, but it's a question of what is being promoted, what aspect is being promoted. And from the government's perspective, it's this whole perspective of sacrifice and war. And in fact, there was even some elements of that in the governor general's speech at the rededication of the war memorial which amongst its rededication, it's rededicated to the Boer War. One of the significant things about that issue is that Canada helped lay the groundwork for apartheid. So I think people should think in depth about some of these questions. Has this effort that the government has put into promoting a culture of militarism, has that seeped into people's everyday consciousness? Have people been affected by these efforts? Has the culture changed because of these efforts by the government? Well, that's a good question. I think to some degree, yes. I think to some degree. And you see that around, you know, in Ontario, you had a whole section, is it of the 401 that was renamed the Highway of Heroes? The provincial government did the same thing here on part of number one west around Brandon. Of course, there's a military base at Shiloh. So I think to some degree, yes. But I think largely people are still passive in the face of it. I don't know if it's really gone into people's consciousness. I just see some events around, uh, you know, what happened with the tragedies in Ottawa and Quebec with the two soldiers being killed, that I think as a whole, Canadians did not respond the way the media, the main media is trying to present it as this outpouring of kind of nationalism. I think Canadians recognized it as tragedies, but I don't think Canadians as a whole doesn't seem really took it a step further and connected it with, you know, this spirit of nationalism, patriotism, and militarism, which the government and some of the media would like to present. What are some of the key actions that you have coming up in the next six months or a year? We will begin planning for our Walk for Peace. It's nice to have two Hallmark events each year. It gives you something to anchor a program around. So we have our Walk for Peace coming up. We have our lantern ceremony coming up. But just the other night, we had our Peace Alliance meeting. And of course, we do have a war resistor Joshua Key in Winnipeg as a resident. And we decided to plan a fundraiser for Joshua in January. Joshua, of course, cannot work in Canada. He has no legal right to work in Canada, so he doesn't. He has no medical coverage in Canada, even though there's been an appeal to the provincial government to grant him that. The provincial government has refused. So for Joshua's medical needs and that, and to help assist his family, we're doing a fundraiser for Joshua in January. And hopefully it'll also contain a political dimension on continuing the pressure that war resistors should be allowed to stay in Canada. And possibly to continue our work with another forum sometime in the new year on the question of human rights. You have been listening to my interview with Glenn Michaelchuk, the chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg. To learn more about their work, go to peacealliancewinnipeg.ca. That's all one word, peacealliancewinnipeg.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.